Podcasting from a spare bedroom in exurban Atlanta. Welcome to the Godless Heathens Podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Don. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jerry. This is a podcast by atheists that talks about a lot of things, not just atheism. We will challenge your assumptions and ours too. Definitely not here to preach to the atheist choir, but to critique, ridicule, and poke fun at anyone, especially ourselves. So join us as we examine a crossroads of politics and religion from the secular perspective. And remember, don't believe everything you hear on this podcast, or anywhere else for that matter, until you've independently verified it for yourself. In other words, don't go, go that shit. shit. Right, episode 52. 52. The deck of cards episode. That's the only thing I can think of was the deck of cards, yeah, 52. That's a special episode. But the, it, yeah. The long threatened. We have, we've talked about it for quite a while now. But, but it's happening. We have a live Skype person. We have a guest who's not guest. in the same meet uh, space. Not in the same room, <laughs> not the in the same of... town, yeah. not even in the same country. Mm. We have Greta Vosper with us, who's up in Toronto, Canada. Welcome to the show, Greta. Oh, I can say hi now. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hi, it's great to be with you, even if it is, you know, electronically. Yes. We could, well, you've been down here before. I was going to say that I was thinking back on our history, where we met and, you know, kind of connected paths. Yeah. And as far as I can remember is it went back to uh, I was just exiting Christianity. That was back in, in 2012. And right before I exited, I, I heard about a thing called the Sea of Faith, which is a group over uh-huh. in New Zealand, Australia, and I guess Britain. Yes. And I tripped upon that, and I learned about Lloyd Gehring, uh, Don Cuppet, John Spong had spoke there, and you had spoken there. Yes. And so that's where I first heard your name, and that's where I learned about one of your books, your first book you wrote, With or Without God. So I read that, and then I don't remember exactly how we got together on, remember the Skeptimersion group on Facebook? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you're telling the truth. Burn, burn. <laughs> anyway, that was that was a it left an impression. Maybe, yeah, apparently maybe so. you should tell the people what you're drinking, Jeff. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right now, I'm drinking Canadian whiskey. I think I'm gonna Obviously, have another hit here. For ob- yeah, for obvious reasons. We're... <laughs> we met, and then Ryan Bell was part of that group too, and that's where we kind of had some conversations with you. And then uh, he started his Year Without God project in 2014. And you were speaking up at a church in North Carolina. Um, Hendersonville. Hendersonville, yep. And so I, I drug uh, Ryan up there to uh, hear you speak. I kind of talked you up to him. And that's so that's where we first met in person. And, mm-hmm. and so that, anyway, so it kind of went from there. Yes. Okay. And I do remember the Facebook group now. Okay. My apologies. <laughs> because if nobody listens this long to the podcast, they'll never get that correction, will they? Do you think they've tuned out already? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, great to be with you guys. Should we call you the Reverend? 
Oh, absolutely. Most people do Her that holiness? They call me that, and then they do this little head bow thing. You know, I don't know what it's called. Curtsy. I want to curtsy. Yeah, you can curtsy. I can eat curtsy. I don't know what that is, but yeah. No, I I generally don't use the reverend, and most of my colleagues don't prefer to be a reverend either, even though they do use that label. Irreverent, maybe? Irreverent. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would call me that, and that would be one of the nicer things, I'm sure. So, other than friend of Jeff, yeah, give us what makes Ms. Vosper famous. Yeah, yes, there's a story. Okay, so the story. Uh, the story began uh, in the congregation that I'm currently serving, and I have been there since 1997. Wow. Um, in 1999, I became the chair of our overseeing body, which is the presbytery, and. While I was in that role, the pres- we needed to do some healing because there had been a really ugly, litigious event in the presbytery. So what I wanted to focus on was bringing people together. And so we did that. The incoming chair and I went around and we got congregations together or we met with them separately. And we took a piece of uh, work that had been done by the National Church to engage people in, in conversation. And the conversations were on values and beliefs. And they were always rich conversations, interesting, uh, really sort of giving, you know, as church things often do, you give them sort of a scenario, you ask the group to talk about the scenario and then report back on what they came to. And and at the end of it, it took two years for us to meet with all of those congregations. And there were 23 in the neighborhood at that point in time. At the end of it, when my colleague and I sat down and started talking about it, what, what we really, what he noticed faster than I was that the ability of those that we met with to actually talk about theological subjects with any kind of understanding beyond what they might have been taught in Sunday school was really not apparent unless uh, the individual had taken theological education or worked higher up in the church or something like that, had exposed themselves to that intentionally beyond the Sunday morning service. So what that meant was that what people were experiencing on Sunday morning was not bringing them up to speed with contemporary theology or indeed what we had been taught at theological college. And that was a, that was a huge shock to me, right? It, because when I came out of theological college, I had all of this information in my head and it had reinforced and deepened a lot of the beliefs that I had arrived there with, or maybe doubts I should have called them. And so I assumed that since my denomination was teaching me this stuff, that that stuff was well known. And I realized over the course of that conversation and the next few months, as I watched what was happening in my congregation, I realized that the language that I used to talk about all that stuff was cryptic, that I had a definition for God that I wasn't explaining or making clear that um, my understanding of who Jesus was, was, was not clear either. In fact, in our services, we're reinforcing things that I absolutely did not believe that whole salvific story was uh, not that I understood had nothing to do with the United Church of Canada was reiterated in the songs that we sang and, and the readings that we shared. And so my anxiety around that grew Sunday by Sunday. And then one Sunday when I was just, I didn't have a sermon ready. It had been one of those challenging weeks. And, and because I don't use notes, I couldn't just pull one out of the out of the drawer. And so I stood up and, and just started to talk and, and really deconstructed God entirely and explained to my congregation 
that my belief in God was nothing like what they may have thought that I believed. You know, I took away intervention. I took away personality. I took away the Trinity. I took away the salvation of Jesus. I took away all of that stuff, right? Which I had assumed they already had, right? And and that I was just owning up to the fact that there was this confusion. Um, and so that's really where it started. And I knew as soon as that service was over that I was kind of uh, in a pickle, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to say, is that is that known? Is that Sunday gone down as you know some sort of some no, Sunday? Is it, it you know is it known through branded? Yeah, exactly. We didn't have a record of it. We used to at that point in time. We had this massive video recorder that you actually put a VHS tape in and recorded right on the video recorder, but it got stolen. Right, so oh, so we no. threw out all the tape. That we didn't even have been, that sermon. It's that unfortunate. Been but actually, the the weirder thing that happened was as soon as I sat down, having completely deconstructed that. I was kind of like getting my bearings and I reach for the bulletin and look at the next thing and it's intercessory prayers. Oh. <laughs> and say things and then say, oh God, in your mercy. And the congregation yes. would say, hear our prayer, which was just kind of like, Awkward. Um, this, 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 is, this is just not good. So anyway, uh. um, I contacted the chair of my board and we decided that we would sit down and have a conversation with the board. And we did that. I think it was the following week, might've been the week after that. We did it as soon as we could. You know, I didn't know what to expect. I certainly, you know, I had talked about it with my family and I, you know, I was certainly prepared to no longer have a position after that conversation. And yeah. instead, you know, they had a very deep and rich conversation. Uh, many of them had explored lots of what I had been talking about in a book study program, which had been going on for probably 15 years at that point. Um, so they were very familiar with the theology that I was talking about and, you know, an understanding of the roots of the United Church and the social gospel and all those things. So they just kind of said, okay, so if we decided that we wanted to move into this kind of a space where we're going to talk more in a way that doesn't assume uh, certain understandings or allow people to assume understandings, what would that look like? And I had no idea, right? I said, I have no idea. And so they said, well, let's find out. And so we, you know, on one radio program, I said it was kind of like we all jumped out of a plane and and we were just holding hands. And, <laughs> and hoping then, somebody had a parachute. <laughs> but, somebody had a parachute on, right? but I knew I wasn't alone from that very first meeting. And that was that was tremendous support. There you go. Um, because I know many, many, many of my colleagues um, have left the ministry because of the challenge that they face just trying to upgrade the hymnody, right? Or, you know, shift around the liturgy. One colleague of mine one time was told that the congregation was not ready to put the hymn between the scripture passage and the sermon. It belongs before. There's a lot of entrenched stuff in churches. So I felt incredibly fortunate to be able to have that conversation with my board and then be invited to actually move into the process of creating something totally new and see how it was going to work. Isn't part of the point that it's entrenched and you were kind of shaking up the entrenchment? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. First of all, 
Although the United Church has been ordaining women since 1936, for many women, they are the first person, the first female person in the pulpit in that congregation. So the congregation before me, I have been the first woman in the pulpit. So that already creates issues within a congregation. Uh, At West Hill, I followed a woman, but the woman had only been there for a few months as an interim, right? They had only had male ministers. So that already set some people's teeth on edge depending upon how entrenched they are. I was fortunate that West Hill was a very open congregation that had been supported by a variety of different clergy, but each one of those clergy, whether it was a conservative or a liberal believer, there had always been permission for inquiry and question and deep discussion. And that has been what made the congregation what it is and what allowed me to then explode the the myth that I believed in an interventionist God and that we were all going to go to heaven when we died and come out the other side uh, with them saying, okay, let's go, right? So the clergy who preceded me were not all ones who would have supported what I was doing. Uh, Indeed, my predecessor, who was liberal, very liberal, and is also an author, can't say anything even halfway decent about me. And yet the one before him, who was radically conservative, was incredibly supportive of what I was doing with Mm. the congregation. So you never know where people are going to lie. So do you ever think what would have happened if they wouldn't have been willing to go on the journey? Would you be one of those ex-ministers as opposed to... Are you? Honey, I, I would have been a minister, but I would have been one that was elected on Monday. Would have been what? Elected I would on have Monday. Minister in our government, we have ministers like the minister of this or the minister of that. I would have been a politician. Oh, oh okay. I got that kind of minister. Get to the language. Actually, I have no idea what I would have done, but I was young enough that I would have been able to figure something out, pick up another career, and probably do pretty cool stuff. But I got to do pretty cool stuff in the church instead. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, too, is so it sounded like you had a pocket of people that were studying the progressive theology like Spong, who we talked about earlier. Yes. And, and Dom Croson and those kind of places. And what made me think of that, too, is the church up in Hendersonville, North Carolina. They had a small pocket of people that were doing those same kind of studies because I remember in the breakout, you know, we were talking to people that were members there. And there's a lot of gray hairs in that church. But they we'll say, were. Hey, what's wrong with that? Uh, nothing. <laughs> Looking at my head. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's like they were grabbing on to what you were saying quite well. Now it seemed like the pastor there was the one that was kind of putting the brakes on. So it's almost the like it's in reverse. One. Yeah, the entrenched one. Yeah. Well, he was actually pretty progressive, and I was really impressed with his invitation and and what he offered. Mm-hmm. Um, And often it's not necessarily the older members in a congregation who are the ones who are entrenched. Often they are at a place where they have thought themselves through to a lot of clarity and they're eager to engage and ask questions and leave a path that they think has no purpose anymore and and do something themselves. So the first few people who left our congregation were were younger people. they were they were younger families who left, and the 99-year-old in my congregation is one of the strongest supporters, hmm. and age really doesn't have anything to do with it. I think a strong sense of well-being and confidence and curiosity is all it takes to 
go someplace where you've never been before. I lament that the situations in which we find ourselves in our culture, in our societies, in our political realms, that those create such nervous tension for us that we tend, some people are tending to buckle down in the rigid beliefs that they think are going to keep them safe, right? They don't have the emotional fortitude to move outside of those boxes when their anxiety is getting triggered by, and I don't like that word, but is is rising in relation to their work and their family and the governments that are leading them and the climate situation and the stuff their kids are coming home from school with. I mean, there's a lot of stress out there. So that really limits the ability to really want to grapple with big questions and give up some of the structures on which you've hitched your or on which you've hung your understandings of the world and how things work. Yeah, if you're stressed, you're not going to take those things off the hook and just go with the wind, right? Well, because I remember in, in 2001, 9-11, after that tragedy, there was a big bump in church attendance. So Yep, absolutely. Happens so every time it's a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. So people are just reaching out for something that seems familiar, something that seems safe or whatever. Comforting. Comforting, so... Yeah, I don't, I don't know well, how you that, break people it's out a, of It's that. kind of this template that helps people make sense of things. The same thing happened after Katrina. There's a major bump in belief. Whenever there's a hurricane that hits someplace, you know, there's this huge outcry of praise and thanksgiving that I'm still alive, right? Yeah, which it, it just goes to where our baser instincts are. And there we hunker down and, and we want to believe in fairy tales. But at the same time, you know, why why don't people think also about, you know, the hundreds or thousands of people that, that died is like, where was God yeah. there? So there's kind of that, that flip side that probably unravels some people. Absolutely. And and I have been very frustrated and, and alarmed when theologians help, try to help people understand what went on by saying things or writing things that say, you know, the people who were spared uh, were ob- they're obviously there's a greater purpose to their life, which I find so offensive. Mm-hmm. I can hardly bear it. One of the better known uh, religious figures in our country wrote that in a book about someone she was in a conversation with who had not gone to work that morning and so was spared. And it's just a theology that is loathsome. Uh, as far as I am concerned. Well, I remember what you got in trouble uh, after the Charlie Hebdo incident where yeah. was it? I forget what, you, what the top dog at your church is. That, that, uh, is the moderator. The moderator that, that wrote something in the paper. And... Well, it was there was after I had already identified as an atheist a couple of years before that because of the secular bloggers in Bangladesh who were being threatened with execution. And when the Charlie Hebdo attacks took place, my denomination often put some kind of a message on the front of their website. And so I went to the website to check out the message to see if I would wanted to, you know, link it to our, our newsletter for that week. And it was a prayer, which was pretty innocuous, really. At that point, I didn't know that the moderator wrote it, and I still don't know if the moderator actually wrote it. I assume someone in the communications department wrote it. But there it was, and it just, I, it really, it didn't ask God to do anything for us. It really just expressed its sadness and concern and hopes grounded in this divine intervention of supernatural being that we all call God. And I thought, you know, we have just witnessed one of those situations that happen around the world all the time, but this time it was in a white Western country, where 
for religious reasons, a massacre has taken place. And we are going to use the concept of our God, uh, which is so poorly interpreted and so so misused at times like this. And we are going to refer to that God and appeal to that God for assistance in processing this. I mean, I mean, it wasn't a big thing, but it seemed a big thing. We're asking God for this kind of comfort at this point in time. And we understand that your God asked you to kill these people, right? Like which God is which, right? And which one deserves more respect? If you're Mm -hmm. talking about your moral authority being posited in a supernatural being, you don't get to say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Your moral authority is not that supernatural being. That one is made up or you've misinterpreted it. That's not really what it is. You don't get to say that. If you have no proof that your moral authority is a divine being, then you need to shut up at that point. And so really, I expressed my frustration with that and asked the moderator to lead the United Church beyond uh, that language, which has become, it was idolatrous. The Mm. language has become an idol. It's more important to us to use the word God than it is to actually talk about what we mean by that word. And that's when kind of triggered the uh, the heresy trial. Was that around that same time, or is that not related? Yes. So uh, no, it's related. Sort of. Uh, I mean, I think at that point in time, they decided that there was going there needed to be something done, and so they were waiting for the opportunity to make that happen. So, a few weeks after that, we had a reporter at our church, um, young guy, no knowledge of religion, did an article on what we were doing. And, well, I guess um, she that what, in. No knowledge of religion. Those. <laughs> well, he didn't. He really didn't know anything. He was never about a church. He didn't know anything about it. So, uh, Young guy. Couldn't find his ass with a map. Both hands. You know. <laughs> but but uh, the fact is, most Canadians don't go to church, right? So oh, yeah. he's just like every, everybody else. So he assumes that because I'm a minister, that I believe that Jesus is the divine son of God. So he makes some reference to that. And I went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> Back it up. <laughs> I said, I don't know if Jesus even was. And then I, you know, explained about the Jesus seminar and that, you know, for over 100 years, we've been we've been exploring who Jesus really was. We haven't come up with an answer and blah, blah. Most of the stories written were decades after he died. Anyway, all of that stuff. The only thing he heard was, I don't think Jesus even was. <laughs> I don't know that Jesus even was. But what he put in the paper is, I, is that I said, I don't think Jesus even was. That's, what, it, that's what his editor yeah. said. Like, yeah. what? She said that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. putting that right yeah. in there. Yeah. I don't need anything yeah. else. He went crazy. Yep. So she doesn't even believe Jesus exists. Well, of course I believe Jesus existed. Read my books. I talk about Jesus. You know, like, come on, people. You know, do your research. So anyway... So there was all this stuff on Should Facebook about okay. me not believing Jesus existed and and my responsibility. If I go to the press, I need to take responsibility for what's, you know, reported. And A, I hadn't gone to the press. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> so there was then there was this histrionic um, radio show host in London, Ontario, who... Been there. ...announced that he was going to uh, talk about my situation in the United Church and called the United Church to fold, right? Anyway, and someone was listening to it and called, contacted me and said, Greta, they're going to do this at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon or whatever time it was, and I think you need to call them. So I stupidly called. And so he was just rude. 
histrionically rude. And I mean, really, all I said was, I don't speak for the United Church of Canada. I speak for myself. And um, I am a minister in the United Church of Canada, but that doesn't mean that I get to speak on its behalf. Like, that's basically yeah. what I said. Well, you went crazy and eventually called me ab an abomination and slammed the phone down on me. So that's fine, right? I mean, that's par for the course. I'm not upset about that. That's a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> I, I spent six or eight years arguing with one of Canada's most histrionic evangelicals on the radio every week. So, you know, it didn't bother me. But later on, an official in the United Church phoned in and made a number of comments about how she could not speak to how my overseeing body was dealing with me. And so really, on several occasions, she dropped the gauntlet for my overseeing body. And so they picked it up hmm. and had a meeting and decided that they were going to ask for a way that I could be reviewed because there, are, there is no theological litmus test for ordained clergy that they have to continually pass. Um, the Presbyterian Church in New Zealand, and I don't know if it's the same elsewhere, but if a minister moves to a new church, they have to confess. They have to say that they agree to the Westminster Confession from, I think, 1672, right? So one of the clergy people that we met there said that they would never be able to move to another congregation because they would never say that again. I mean, if the United Church had wanted that kind of orthodoxy, they certainly could have made that a requirement, but they never did, and they have never done that in the past. They now have a process for requiring the clergy be an ongoing, affirmation of a belief in a literal trinity, right? Which I, I mean, I didn't even learn about a literal trinity at theological college. I've never, I've never had a belief in a literal trinity. So, but now if I'm asked, I have to say I have a literal belief in the trinity. Although I never said that in my review, but they let me stay anyway. That's kind of a big change. I mean, that's a, it's that's a change that you forced on them or they changed because of you. That changed because of me, um, because I was, I think I was an embarrassment to them. Um, and you see, you have to go back, even before I arrived at the church I'm at, um, there was already some work being done, or maybe it was right when I arrived, back in the late 90s. There was already, I mean, there was heaps of concern that the denomination was decreasing, right? Every mainline denomination has been decreasing for a very long time, and evangelical congregations are decreasing as well, numbers in evangelical churches. So the writing's been on the wall for a long time. The various denominations have read it and interpreted that writing in a variety of different ways. And the United Church of Canada chose, I believe, to interpret it. And I'm not talking about the United Church, actually. I'm talking about the senior staff in the United Church who chose to interpret the situation as one that that could be mitigated if we were able to draw in an entirely new demographic that we normally didn't have in our congregations at that time. And so following uh, some of the research and surveys that have been done, um, they made a pie chart of the immigrant population because in Canada, I doubt in the United States, but in Canada, the major feed for uh, Protestant growth, uh, religious growth, has been the immigrant population, right? So you had uh, 
a wave of uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants uh, after the war. You have waves of Catholics from a variety of areas, uh, different areas in, in the world. You know, it, we now we now are having Muslims. Uh, our Im immigrant population has a significant number of Muslims in it. So they looked at that uh, religious pie and they said, okay, who are we going to be able to attract? Well, we're not going to attract the Roman Catholics, clearly. We're not going to attract the Muslims. So the only other sector in that pie is the evangelical Protestants Ooh. who are coming in from West Africa and Southeast Asia, the Philippines. So mm -hmm. we've got some evangelical Protestants coming in from those places. But the big problem was the largest and fastest growing piece of that pie wasn't on the plate. And that is the secular growth, the secular immigrants, the secular, the, the existing population of people who, you know, identify as nuns, right? Like those are, that's the fastest growing, quote unquote, religious sector in my country and in yours. That's right? the market. And, and yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. And they didn't even have that in their pie, wow. right? So they wow. made their decision based on very faulty information. So what happened was that they started moving and because it was senior staff, I believe it was senior staff because one of them actually told me uh, some of that in a conversation. They started working with the elected officials, so the members of the denomination who were acting in different bodies and different committees, uh, started working toward increasing what they called the intercultural element in church. So we started working on intercultural ministry development, which, of course, in the United Church of Canada sounds very progressive. Uh, one of the things that happened concurrently was that uh, one of the larger regions in our church, one of the large regions in our church, Saskatchewan Conference, um, had decided that they wanted to have the Articles of Faith removed from our statements of belief, right? We had we had other ones that were newer, but that was the one that, that candidates still had to say they were in essential agreement with. And this gets technical, guys, so don't fall asleep. But <laughs> when the United Church was made, there were three different denominations, and others have come into it since then, but there was the Presbyterians, half the Presbyterians, the, Mod the Methodists, and the um, Congregationalists, which were a dissenting Episcopalian uh, group. So you had those three groups coming together. Well, their statements of faith were very, very different. So they they had to come up with a statement of faith that all of them could agree to. And that statement of faith was written in 1908, which was, you know, before the first war. And we didn't actually come together until 1925. So so that statement of faith. Details. Uh, <laughs> details, right? But but the thing is, still in 1925, they're going, there, there are some of them saying, there's no way I am giving up the things that I was taught and that I believe and that were that I agreed to when I was ordained for this statement of faith, which is, which is a mishmash or that doesn't agree in this area yeah. or that area. So they agreed that in order to allow those who were coming into the church from previous existing denominations with their own statements of faith, uh, that they would recognize those statements of faith and say that this is our statement of faith, but you only have to be in essential agreement with it. In other words, you can bring to it your interpretation, your understanding. Right? You've, been, you've been grandfathered. And yeah. It was all grandfathered. Yep. But the problem was, as soon as the United Church started ordaining its own clergy, what did essential agreement mean? So across the country, which is large, there were some who felt that essential agreement meant absolutely, you know, literal. And there were some that meant, you know, let's interpret this a bit and come up with something that's more meaningful for our time or more representative, blah, blah, blah. So you have some places. And so we have like this diversity of faith across the church. Well, 
Saskatchewan wanted the, those articles of faith, and Article 19 is that the finally impenitent shall be cast into everlasting damnation. So I don't know, Jeff, but even over a beer, I don't think I would agree to that. So, <laughs> so really, um, we got we had got to this place where finally someone was saying, you know, we got to bring these things up to date. Like, why should clergy, why should students, ordinance have to agree to that statement of faith when they don't believe most of it at all, right? Like, we've got other ones that are more current. Why don't we say the song of faith or whatever? We went into that process of changing that, but again, it got manipulated by the senior staff. And so rather than taking that piece out, they made all of them equal in footing underneath the authority of the Bible, which we did not have before. We actually had a big argument in 1992 and couldn't agree on whether or not the Bible was a, was an authority or the authority of the church, right? Like, because there was so much controversy about whether it was, you know, the word of God for all time or whether it was a book that, you know, we studied and sometimes it made sense and sometimes it was completely nonsensical, right? So for that to be pulled back in by the senior staff continued that trajectory toward creating a more um, conservative church, which we which we now have, unfortunately, because I'm an atheist. <laughs> you started it all. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I certainly have silenced a lot of progressive clergy. I mean, after the heresy thing happened, I mean, who's going to say anything? There's a there are a couple of a, lo- a number of, of Retired clergy have expressed incredible support. Some uh, have been, some, you know, active clergy have been quietly supportive. Uh, and a few have been outspoken, right? And I fear for them. Although I, I do think that this was a, I do think that there was a lot of personal stuff related to this review. I do think that they, they may yet find themselves in the position of, of one of the, one of the clergy that has come in from another denomination uh, and who is evangelical and extremely conservative may ask for a review of another, of another minister. And that review will have to go forward. So as far as you're so, aware, you're the only out atheist pastor in your denomination? I'm the only one who's, who uses that word. I mean, I have an article I want to write called A Dash of Bigotry in the United Church of Canada. And the dash is that there are a lot of clergy in the United Church who identify as, as you know, panentheists or even A-theists, oh, wow. right? <laughs> Non-theists. But one of them put on Facebook during this review process, if she was an A-theist, I would be fine with it. But she's not. She's an atheist. Well, what, is, what does A-mean? Dash mean? I, don't, I don't get that. Well, that's the thing. Like A-dash refers to an elite, uh, an elitist understanding of theism that would be probably completely nonsensical to anyone in the pew. They would not be able to understand what someone meant by that. But they hold it as this privileged, educated, elitist position in theology. Mm. And so to differentiate that from atheism, uh, the only difference between those things is bigotry, in my, Mm. my opinion. So when people ask me, well, do you wish maybe you hadn't done this? Not far into it, I realized how bigoted my denomination was, and I was shocked and deeply concerned about that. So I would still call myself an atheist and and require that my denomination deal with that. And that's really what's happening now. They have to deal with it. So in every media story... They they will mention heresy, but it wasn't really heresy. What were the what was the actual like official name for the process? Yeah, it sounds like they're they going to do it again. Use, they didn't use the word heresy. I've used the word heresy. They have refused to use that word. They have called it. It was a disciplinary review of my effectiveness. Oh, sounds corporate. <laughs> Gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Well, if I had to redefine effectiveness in order for me to be reviewed for right. my effectiveness, right. because when the person who started this all came to tell, advise me that it was happening, he said, of course, we can't re review you on your effectiveness because clearly you're effective, right? Until they redefined what that word meant, and then they could. Well, you got, well, every good religion has to have metrics. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. Yes, and those were the metrics. So, yeah. yeah. That, that so we, we started talking to it because it was heresy, you know, and, and, you know, it was about a belief. Like, you have to believe this. And if you're testing me on whether I believe that or not, that's a heresy trial, clear and simple. I don't care how you want to. How you want to wrap it up and package it to make it palatable for the hundreds of other clergy in the denomination who are now fearful. If you want to call it just a review of my effectiveness, fine. And because the denomination settled um, and, and did not go through with the trial, um, which I had wanted them to do, because of that, and because they have given no comment as their response to any media that has reached out to them or any, far as I know, any congregation that has asked for clarification, but they've left a mess because people don't know why I'm still allowed to be a United Church of Canada minister, and they're angry and upset, and I get it. So we reach out to them if we hear that there is a congregation that has sent a petition to have me removed or has asked the general secretary to require my resignation or whatever, we reach out to them and say, we'd be happy to come and have a conversation with you. Just let us know and, and we will come, right? And it's not Greta coming, it's, it's the congregation coming. And to date, no one has responded positively to that. But um, we did a number of those hmm. conversations before uh, while the review was on because people, congregations and clergy had asked for conversations about what was going on throughout the review and been denied access to conversation and, and engagement at every level of the church. So in the last year, West Hill said, okay, we're, we're going to make ourselves available. So we spoke from uh, Victoria on the far west coast of Canada to Shelburne uh, in Nova Scotia. And we spoke at, at many uh, communities across the country. And at one of them in Montreal, a gentleman who was there, who when he came in, uh, spoke with the person who was setting up for refreshments. And she used the word vitriol, the regard he had for me and my congregation. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the meeting, he made his way to her to tell her that he had completely changed his opinion of mm -hmm. what it was we were doing and why it was important for uh -huh. us to be in the United Church of Canada. That he took the time to go and tell her shows how important it was to him. And that's the kind of thing that happens. I mean, the United Church made this about me being a histrionic atheist who wants to take down the church or something. Indeed, it's not. Our work was inviting the denomination to see that their work was on the forefront of where theological institutions can go. And that is beyond theology and into the streets and making the off-label benefits of religion, which go to subjective well-being and engagement in the community and participation in voluntary and philanthropic endeavors. That's the off-label benefit of religion. And we were saying, you can do it this way. You can still engage the populations by bringing your language to the level of the street, which is where it should always have been and engaging people in ways that meet them where their needs are instead of presenting this upper crust elitist theology and saying, if you want to get anything we have to offer, you have to be able to sit through this language and listen to these stories and stand up and sit down when we tell you to, right? We were saying 
there's some other way we've got to do this. And there's an entire growing segment of the population who needs that. The, the fastest growing medical ailment is depression. And loneliness is one of the most significant factors in our communities. People are alone. And that, that has, you have a bigger risk of dying of loneliness than you do of cancer. You know, if my denomination could have actually focused on what we were doing, which none of them know about, because none of them came to see what we were doing or even asked me what we were doing, I think they could have seen that this was what the future of the United Church could have been. And there was no denomination on the planet that was more prepared to actually do that work than the United Church of Canada. And it failed entirely. You know, I was going to ask you why you're still a, a pastor in that denomination, but you pretty much answered it right yeah. there. It's, it's about the yeah. community and yeah, you know, holding one, uh, one another accountable and to be yeah. part of and, the community. And identifying the values by which you want to live and then and then holding one another when you haven't been able to do that. You know, when you end up in an ethical situation, you know, and you have two things that are the best things that you could do, and but you can only do one of them. I mean, you have to lament that you weren't able to do the other, right? And we lament those things together, and, and we encourage one another. And we it's not perfect, but it's a possibility that human community has always had. And our society is fragmenting so quickly and so severely that that, for me, is a, is a hugely important piece of work that yet to be done and done well. I mean, one little congregation on a corner in Toronto is not enough by any stretch of the imagination. But now you have another community, uh, the Oasis community. Is that still going on? Yes, the Oasis, yeah, the Oasis community functions in downtown Toronto. We're in the very eastern edge of Toronto, and it has been functioning now. It'll be two years this February, and it brings together a community of people that's fairly stable, but newcomers all the time as well, and they function along the same kind of model as uh, the Oasis communities in the States have modeled themselves. Right. But one of the interesting things about the ones in the States and the one in Toronto is when we put together the one in Toronto, almost no one had any experience in church at no. all. One other leader and I had experience in church and the rest of them really came from not even ever being in church except for somebody's wedding. Whereas in the, in the States, a lot of the leadership in the groups that come together are people who have left evangelical communities. No. Um, they know church they know how to do church, and they know what they don't like about church. So one of the big things that is a huge difference between the Oasis communities and West Hill is West Hill sings together. Oasis communities don't sing because singing has been, is an, it's a PTSD thing for young people who have been emotionally manipulated with the music of evangelical Christianity. No. So if, they, if people start singing around them, it's like, mm. you know, I'm out of here, right? <laughs> West Hill still sings, and, and we think singing is, like I think singing is, it's one of the most primal human bonding experiences, right? So for me, it's, it's still really important, and we do it together. But for the Oasis communities, it has really, the music is, the, there's music at every gathering, but they're done by professionals who come in and they just present their songs. They're not invited to sing along with them, at least not with any regularity. Interesting. I didn't know that. So, when was the last time you guys got together and sang? I mean, the three really? of us? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hear that. No. No. <laughs> It'd be a bonding experience. It would be. Could be a traumatic bonding yeah. experience. I've never been to an oasis. What would you call that? Um, 
gathering. gathering. I've been I've been to Sunday assembly and they they had singing and as, as the as songs were always geared towards whatever the message that month was. A lot of Joni Mitchell. Well, you know, thanks for being a friend or, you know, whatever. You know, just... Yeah, songs that people generally know. Yeah. And the able to sing along yeah. With that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seemed yeah. to me the Sunday assembly I'd been to, it, it was very much like, like a church. I mean, the same kind of thing where you had the songs and then you had somebody come up and do the announcements and then another song and then yeah. you had... You know, a speaker. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't called a sermon, but it was kind of a talk and then another song. And then afterwards you had coffee hour. So it was, you know, it, it didn't connect with me since I'd kind of been through that and kind of done with that formula. Um, mm-hmm. So how is Oasis different, or at least your community different? Well, how do you structure that? Our church still has a stand up, sit down, pass the plate thing going on. Like we still, you know, we have. Church. It starts normally with some announcements and a welcome. Then we greet everybody, which is, you know, Scott has to start playing the piano louder and louder and louder to get people to sit down because there's <laughs> just like, this, you know, and we warn visitors that, you know, they don't have to get up and do that. And then there's uh, people share some celebrations and we have some readings, uh, which I choose to go with the theme. And I, I read... There's a, do you know what I mean when I talk about the lectionary? I, There's a I set do, of yeah. readings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Don's <laughs> not going to say, but he doesn't know okay. either. Okay. Yeah, just sitting there looking silent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, every week, there's a, there's a thing called the Revised Common Lectionary, and it is a set of texts, biblical texts, for every Sunday in a three-year cycle. And it's revised because the first time they did it, they forgot to include women. So they had to go back and include women. Did so they now forget? The yeah. Did they really text. forget? Was that a or did they just get know, called out did. on it? <laughs> anyway, so it now has women in. So I use that every week because I, for years, I've been trying to, except for this heresy trial, I would actually have finished a resource project for clergy who, who are in a congregation where they still have to use the Bible but they want to be able to speak post-theistically or non-theistically. They want to talk about values and stuff. So I read those texts and I pick out a theme and then I find secular texts that can be read to that theme. So a couple of Sundays ago, it was the golden calf incident. You know, Moses is taken too bloody long. They make this, they melt down their stuff and they make this golden calf. So, so my theme was the easy gods, right? What are our easy gods that we quickly and easily put our lives down to? Now, that was probably the first time I'd used the word God in, in a service for a year, right? That's a small um, G, though. It's a small G. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, it's a small G. And then this past Sunday, um, what was the passage this past Sunday? I can't remember. But anyway, my theme I pulled out of it was the after gods, like as in the afterthought. Like, what do you do if you put away your devotion to this kind of behavior or this, you know, where do you go? How do you anchor your life in something? What do you anchor it in? So that's really where we went. And so each week I choose some readings. I write a poem about the theme and then I speak, right? We have a sharing time where people talk about what's going on in their lives. And we even have like, you know, when I got up and I had to say, oh, God, in your mercy, and they said, hear our prayer. Well, we even had those little verticals because we wanted to keep things feeling the same as we made those changes uh, back in the early 2000s. So so we say in this abundant blessing and the congregation says we share the joy or 
um, in this our time of need, and the congregation says, may love abound. So, and I see, hmm. you know, if something tragic happens to someone in the community, an email will go out w- with a whole pile of names on it. And I just see emails coming back, you know, reply to all, and people are saying, may love abound, may love abound, may love abound, is coming through these email messages over and again, right? Like they got it, right? They know what they're doing. These people are phenomenal. They just hold one another with such grace and concern and love and yeah. And so yeah, they, they don't amazing. need they don't need to say we're praying for you anymore. They say may love abound. That's may love that, abound. That's a good yeah. substitution. That's like cool. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it works. And we've you know we've got we haven't escaped the trajectory of of decline. Uh, we're predominantly older. We're in a, a suburb that has changed radically, even over the time that I've been there. I said earlier that there were 23 congregations when we did that little thing back in 1999, 2000. There's now eight congregations, and the rest of wow. that, I mean, hmm. we lost two-thirds of our congregation in 2009, 2010, and we have not amalgamated with anybody. The, the other congregations, uh, to the best of my knowledge, but one, are amalgamations of congregations that have closed one or two, two or three congregations, one or two congregations that have moved in with a third one or sold their building and taken the money down to the other church. So they're still surviving, but we're still surviving with a fairly healthy turnout on Sundays for where we are and their age and still managing our finances. We're currently trying to sell the building or considering selling the building or doing something with the building because we can't afford the building but we can still afford our payroll and and the work that we want to do and Mm. the ministry that we do to the community within the community. And we still do the work of holding ourselves accountable to one another based on the values that we choose to live by. Well, I think that's that's, that's kind of a challenge, I think, for even, uh, you know, atheist communities like Oasis or Sunday Assembly is finding an affordable building and then people that will fund that building, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. so in, in Oasis, do you, I mean, you don't have your own building, but you're renting a space, or yes, they're renting a space in the University of Toronto's Interfaith Center, and they have been very generous. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful building. Uh, the space is lovely, and so they've been using that same space since they started there in February 2015, 2015, 20, 2016. I don't know when it was, honestly. <laughs> three years oh my goodness but it could be that it was it was when the review was on that we launched it and we decided we were going to go ahead with that anyway so that would have been 2016 so do you see that as 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 a solution for you know going forward you know with the the rise of the nuns or or how do we Um, solve the community gap i would really like to be able to put some energy into that um i'm not able to right now uh, because of the challenges that west hill are facing west hill which are predominantly financial uh so they're trying to figure out how to how to manage that whether to sell the building and then use that money to create you know lasting ministries within the community or what but yes i think i think if there was dedicated attention and time to that that getting those communities going uh, in every major city would be really, really helpful. And up here, we're all—we're ge- at least a generation ahead of you in terms of the decline of the church. You still have people who are in their 20s and 30s who are in church. We don't. My generation is not in church, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm older than most of you, I think. So, not me. 
Canadians, <laughs> Canadians, you know, the average church age is is well up there uh, in any of the progressive denominations or liberal denominations. So finding ways to get Oasis communities or something like them operating in major cities is pretty important. And and then finding ways to gather people around. It's large cities because you have to have a guest speaker every week, right? You can't do that in a small town, but you can, um, you know, have a satellite feed that will allow people to gather around something and yeah. have a conversation. And I forgot to mention, I, I started out talking about um, the difference between Oasis and Sunday Assembly. And, the, and for me, the significant difference is that Oasis meets every week and the ones that are doing the well are the ones that also have groups that meet midweek. Um, could be a women's dinner or it could be a kid's day at the park or it could be, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, they get together multiple times and that's what builds those ties in religion. And that's the kind of work that Putnam did with uh, Cheyenne Lim, recognizing, oh, I'm sorry, that's my phone ringing. I can turn this one off, but I can't turn all the rest of them off. Uh, well, people know it's okay. real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People know it's real. Ah, very good, yes. Anyway, um, uh, Putnam and Lim in 2010, this was just as I was finishing my book on men, um, their work came out that showed that all of the studies that showed that people with people who were religious had better, you know, they were happier, right? That that wasn't tied to beliefs. That was tied to uh, the contacts that they had with the church which and with the community. So the number of times they got together with one another or connected with one another had a positive impact on their subjective well-being. So their subjective well-being wasn't had no relation to whether or not they believed what was what the church represented or what their own personal beliefs were. It had to do with the social contacts that they made because of that community. So Sunday assembly meeting only once a month cannot achieve that. Yeah. It, yeah. it will never achieve that level of subjective well-being so unless it has another massive system operating in between those two months that brings people together. Um, you, the people who put together a dinner group in their apartment building that meets every week, they have a better chance of building subjective well-being than the Sunday Assembly simply because of the number, the number of times that they meet. So the media coverage and the discussion, to me, all seems to center around the faithful perception of you and your journey. What was the atheist reaction? Or was there a consistent atheist reaction? That's a good question. I think it's been predominantly positive. There are some people who, you know, wonder why I would stay in a church at all and why I would want to stay in a church if I was an atheist. But when I explain that, that the belief system that was instilled in me as a child is fairly consistent with what it is I believe now and what was reinforced at theological college, they kind of scratch their heads because they haven't been exposed to that kind of studious theological interpretation that that my denomination exposed me and my generation to. I say my generation because the curriculum that shared that um, was only in use, really, from the time that I started kindergarten Sunday school until I was confirmed in my early teens. And then it was out of use again. So hmm. the people who benefited from that got a radically different understanding than most Sunday schools give out 
even now. So when I explain that, then they still kind of scratching their head, but they get it a little more. But I think the piece that's more meaningful is the subjective well-being and my dedication to working on building that up. And I don't think, I mean, when I spoke at the American Humanist Association in whatever year that was, 2015, I think, Sakivu Hutchison spoke later and she spoke, I was there as a, as a panel member with the clergy project and was humiliated when one of the other members uh, went on with this very gross illustration and completely inappropriate illustration of what religious belief does. And it was exaggerated, it was bloody, and it was untrue and unrealistic. But it was the kind of thing that many people do who have left the church uh, as leaders and still continue to present this institution that is horrific. Anyway, so I was embarrassed to be sitting there while that was going on, but Sakiba Hutchison came on a couple of hours later and was speaking, and she said to the audience that you need to get over, uh, humanists need to get over their almost monomaniacal obsession with religion. Get over it. There is way more that needs to be done than just critiquing religion. My experience of humanists has shifted over the last six to eight years, I would say, because I'm seeing more and more people who are willing to leave behind that constant critique of religion, right? Like, what's the point of that? Move on. There, there's a lot of work that needs to be done and, and a lot of people who need to find their way to connection and find their way to communities that will honor their hearts and, and support them in their need, right? So just bitching about religion all the time is just so boring and unproductive. <laughs> so I hope you guys, that's not what you do all the time. Is that what you do? You sure. obviously haven't listened to the podcast. <laughs> you said you did. <laughs> <laughs> this could be the last episode <laughs> of God with Heathen. <laughs> anyway, but no, but seriously, you know what I mean? Like there's, it's important that we address these issues and you guys are entrenched in a system right now that is really, it's a fight between whether or not the ideals of, you know, citizenship and, you know, integrity and corporate responsibility. And I'm talking not corporate as in corporations, but we're taking responsibility for uh, the, the communities in which we live and, and their leadership and the values by which we want them to be, to be developed and led that is fighting for its life against like this bureaucracy of arrogance and evangelical fervor when the the fervor is about things that evangelical Christianity shouldn't even be supporting, right? So you're embedded in a very different context than I am. So it's easy for me to say, leave that conversation and go on. Actually, Sakibu is American, so she said it, not me. I just supported it. But I do think that there's work to be done. Once you turn the podcast off, you each go and do that work, right, in your own communities. I know that you do, and and I know that the people that are listening to you do as well, right? Like some of the people that I've met in this journey who have been on the humanist side of the scale um, have been deeply embedded in their communities and doing incredibly good work. And some of them are just still bitching about the church, right, because the church that they remember was a cruel and demeaning uh, undertaking, and I, I get that. But, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Well, it, it doesn't help it, you heal. Yeah. I it, mean, if you're still carrying that around, you're not healing. I don't know. Maybe it's too easy for me to say that. No. It's not, you know, I thought not, not you were going to say anything again. No. Okay. No, no. It's <laughs> like, well, uh, we actually talk, feels like that we talk about that 
a lot about the angry atheist, the sometimes stereotype of the angry atheist, and that it is ultimately self-defeating because it does not get you anywhere. You will always be able to complain about certain things. And if all you're doing is complaining about the same kind of certain things all the time, in the end, you're no better off where you've finished than where you started. As an atheist, that part of atheism frustrates me because it just doesn't feel like there is any progress. Well, yeah, I mean, especially in the times that we're living in, you know, like like with climate change is, is a prime example of that. So if we're spinning our wheels just beating up on religion and not doing anything to advance minds on the reality of, of what what's ahead, what was happening right now, too, you know, how is that doing anything for the benefit of, of our lives? That's 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 kind of my thought. But religion gets involved in that, though. Well, it does because, the, because that's one of the big the obstacles. Defense, yeah, well, obstacle, yeah, and to doing anything about it. You hear the religious objections to doing anything about climate change. God, God wouldn't flood the earth. Yeah, yeah. You um, made a promise, right? <laughs> Rainbows yeah. and all, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. So now, is, there's is, no need to do anything. We're we're good. Is, we, that, is that the same with with your conservative party up there? Are they of that same kind of mindset where they don't care about climate change or they didn't deny it like the conservatives here? Or is that, they profit from it? I, I, well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I don't think that there's a kind of Bible believing uh, refusal to acknowledge what's happening here um, as there is in the states. Uh, but the main oil producing province, Alberta, uh, is is at risk of losing most of its, you know, most of its eco- economic wealth because of uh, changes that will have to come into play in the next few years or we're in big trouble. Like we can't just phase out fossil fuels between now and 2050. We have to do it in the next decade or we're in big trouble so it obviously that's a huge, huge source of fear and panic uh, in that province. I understand that totally, but I don't think that just being angry about it and you know trying to hold on to the system that is ultimately got to fail is a way to prepare your the the people of that province um, for what's coming. Right? It's like Exxon in the courts now about, you know, giving a different report to its shareholders than it was giving to its executives, right, about climate change, saying, you know, yeah, we know it's going to be drastic. This is what's going to happen to the company, to the executives, and saying, we're good to the shareholders, right? We're good. So let's just keep doing what we're doing, right? Or or you keep investing the way you're investing, right? And, And not being honest about that. And I think that governments need to be very honest about it. And about what's going on, I love what the Guardian is doing in uh, in terms of a, a news outlet. Um, they are refusing to not present climate stories as stories of disaster and loss. Right, so they have an entire uh, section devoted now to to the climate crisis, mm-hmm. and a lot of news outlets continue to try to mitigate that. They. They continue to try to balance it a little bit. You know, here's your good news story. Tiny homes are on the rise. Look at the interiors of this one, right? Yeah. Made with all recyclable materials. Well, who cares? I think tiny homes are cute too. But the fact that 
we're all screwed. You know, we got to address that and not just, you know, give us another clickbait story that is, you know, will numb us for another 10 minutes or something. Um, so, so I'm deeply concerned about the resource provinces of our country, oil uh, in Alberta and uh, grain and farming and in Saskatchewan. Um, both of those industries are going to be seeing huge change as a result of climate and how we prepare for that has got to happen quickly. Justin Trudeau, one of the, one of the groups that hived off liberals, the liberals as supporters were the group that was furious that he bought the pipeline, right. the um, Trans Mountain Pipeline, because A, it was going through Indigenous territory, or B, it's still, you know, supporting a, an oil economy, or C, he did it without, you know, the negotiations of whatever, whoever needed to be at the table. And I know that that story has got to be far more complex than I have been able to grasp with what I've read in, in the news about it, but it seems counter to the prevailing wisdom around climate and finding new ways to extract oil uh, from the earth when the reserves that supposedly, I mean, if you count the reserves that are on the books of all these corporations, we have way more oil than we can you know, safely burn. So if we have all of that in reserve, why are we still trying to find new ways to extract it and and make it available? Well, right? that's, that's easy, though. I mean, that it's, I mean, it's that, that's easy and it, and it gets money from shareholders. Absolutely. But it's not it's not addressing the, the real issue, which well, is putting people out of their homes because of wildfires and flooding and drought and the collapse of ecosystems that fed them. We're, we have to address those things. And it's like, you know, the book World War Z. I didn't see the movie, but the book was phenomenal. And one was. of the things that that he pointed out was that every war is fought, is prepared for based on the weaponry of the last war, right? So everything we try to do to deal with climate is based on what we've done in the past, and that's not going to work, right. right? We have to come up with new ways of dealing with it, and we yeah. can't just wait till a disaster happens. And then, oh, gosh, did we not fill the sandbags? We have to be more forward-thinking. We've got to deal with this with a, with a hive mentality and cooperate with one another, and we're not, we're not doing that. Yeah, but to get back to a, a theme that you mentioned earlier on in the show, the reason why fighting this is so difficult is because you have entrenched financial interests, big-time money that has all of their resources, all their investments are in the current way of doing things. Yep. And there is an unwillingness to attack it at that level to keep the people who have the money and power now to continue to keep it. And it doesn't matter what the facts are, and it doesn't matter until it hit, probably it hits them. Mm -hmm. And even, them, they're, even then, they're probably going to have mitigation strategies. But to get that kind of movement, to get that kind of political will, I mean, those are all the people that are keeping the current administration probably there and here ultimately in power. Right. Kind of like the elephant in the room is capitalism. You know, how that is what is the heart is what, of, of what's killing us. And it seems like with the Republicans for the, the 2020 election are really starting to you know create this 
myth of socialism. Mm. So anything that is against capitalism is evil. It's and not against. It's not against. When it's against capitalism, it's against the structure, the way it is now. You know, because it, it, and that's not necessarily capitalism. It's worse. Capitalism gets a bad name for where it has gone and where it's kind of allowed to be. When it is a capitalism versus socialism type argument, we're going to lose it. I don't know that it's capitalism itself. I think it's what Naomi Klein calls corporatism. And I think that the privileges and the rights of the individual that have been extended to corporations um, protects them in ways that allows them to abuse uh, the environment, abuse their workers, uh, to abuse whole ecosystems, because the corporation can't be found liable uh, in any way beyond what an individual would be, and it has all the rights of an individual. I think those kinds of concepts have to change. And I don't know, like like limited liability. I've been talking about limited liability for over a decade, that limited liability was great when we were risking everything to plunder somebody else's country or continent, and it allowed people to go on those great explorations without risking losing absolutely everything. But now limited liability protects abuse and it protects the destruction of huge elements of the ecosystems that sustain us, right? Like the whole beef industry in the United States. You know, I might be be putting myself at risk by even saying anything about the beef industry in the United States. But the beef industry in the United States has rights that are appalling, you know, like that, you know, they can wipe out a whole species uh, if they consider them predators. And they have every right to shoot them on sight and completely destroy habitats. And the meat industry around the world is destroying habitats. I mean, what's happening in the Amazon right now is appalling. And there's no, I mean, there are Brazilians on the ground are trying to save it and and make change. But the government is so perversely working for its own interests and interests of the people that are lining its pockets that, that, you know, it's not going to do anything. And, And so we have kinds of things like that. It's like if we were to think about what did the people of the country of Canada and the UK, and I don't think the United States so much, but what did we give up during the war so that we could maintain this response to such a an egregious system which was trying to overtake us we would give up everything but we were still allowing while we were like living on food stamps and whatever it was that that was needed you know rationed um, fuel and all those kinds of things particularly in the uk everybody rallied and did that but at the same time there were people making a fortune on what the weaponry that was allowing the war to go forward right and that's the big investment potential i can see people sliding their money from oil to weapons right because that's going to be the big need in the coming decades right as we obliterate one another um, that's that's we have not, that's not your need. sunday service this week is it <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, no but I'm, I'm often not much more cheerful than that <laughs> <laughs> so. That's why we still sing. Scott Ross's songs are lovely. That's not fair. His songs, his songs bleed too. So uh, Naomi Klein called it what? Corp- corporatism is that the term? Corporatism, yeah. Okay, because I heard. And, um, and you've heard of Robert Reich, right? Yes. 
Because it seemed like he had a thing that was kind of comparing um, oligarchy to democracy. That's kind of the, the thing that's mm-hmm. causing the issue where, you know, we're, we're, we're setting up in terms that aren't really realistic. And that's really what it's – and that's kind of what you know, where corporate uh, or capitalism has gone off the rails is it's concentrated the wealth into the hands of the few. Mm-hmm. And nobody mm-hmm. at the lower end has any voice. So that's kind of where it's at, I think. And, you know, we're so entangled. You know, when I heard about the nursing that took place in the U.K. when a protest was disallowed, they weren't allowed to protest. So a number of mothers, like a lot of them, um, went and sat on the steps of the Google headquarters to protest that Google had been financing climate deniers. And so they sat there and nursed their kids and, you know, had this nurse in thing happening. Well, so I'm like, okay, how do I disentangle myself from Google? Like, how how do I do that now, yep. right? Like, yeah, how, preach. You're singing, singing Jerry's song here. <laughs> what? You're singing Jerry's song oh, here. Oh, big time. Oh, this is, yes. Oh, okay, this is Jerry's okay, wheelhouse. Somebody... Tear him down. Well, and Facebook. <laughs> Break him up. I mean, Facebook. And Facebook. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, we're just so embedded in those. And, and here, you know, like billions of dollars are paid to Netflix in Canada. And, and Netflix pays us no taxes whatsoever. All that money just leaves the country hmm. totally. So how do we do that? It's just, uh, I wish we had Blockbuster still. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, VHS tapes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. Anyway, so yeah, there's there's a lot of issues and, and they're all interconnected and we each do our own little thing where we can and try to have an influence that's positive. But I think that's, that's where that's I try to live there. But that's where it gets back around you know, to having communities, not letting go of communities and trying to recreate communities where there currently aren't any. Because that's what keeps people on task, it keeps people motivated to not give up, not just to curl up in a ball in there bad and, and, you know, give up on things. So so we need to figure the, figure the community thing out, I think. Yep, we do. We do. I mean, how many people get a diagnosis and they have absolutely no one to go home and tell that diagnosis to? Hmm. Like, yeah. So many people, right? Yeah. It's, it's so, I don't know, it's just so sad. And we've been people who have been connected since we first figured out how we worked better together than alone. I mean, that's the only way we survived was because we figured out that we were better together than alone. And we seem to be pushing ourselves away from one another now. And and that mentality will not protect us. Well, that's 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 the damage of social media, too, is is we think that's the substitute for that. We're all connected online digitally. But that is no replacement mm-hmm. for – in fact, I think it's, it's worse. The real evil that they hide when they're in face-to-face conversations comes out online. You know, you have the Twitter mm-hmm. battles yes, and all that kind right. of thing. Yep. So it's actually yeah. working the opposite direction. Yeah. There's lots of people who have talked about me online, and most of those people haven't talked to me online. Right. Or even – or in person. Yep. But, yeah, I don't follow those web pages. There you go. Well, yeah. is there anything – Shamelessly, you'd like to plug at this point. Uh, give your social media. How, how social can somebody? Media. Yeah. Speaking of which, how can somebody get a hold of you if, if they're looking to get in touch with you? I've got two Facebook pages. One is my author page, right. um, and that's Facebook.com/slash/GretaVosper. And my other one is my personal page, which is Greta Ann Vosper. And that's where I post, like, my author page is everything to do with religion. My other page is everything to do with the interests that fuel me. So you can reach me at either of those. My books, unfortunately, are 
available on Amazon. Sorry. <laughs> 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 Go here. Um, and yeah, and I keep I keep writing poetry. I just published a new a new poetry book. Um, oh, nice. Uh, last month, so I'm putting that out on my own website. My website's under development right now, and it's being worked on by. Oh, am I? Can I say this online? Sure. We sponsored a, a refugee family man who had been in hiding for several years because he was an atheist, oh. and and so our congregation sponsored him, and they arrived in June, and that has made all of this worth it totally. Very cool. So. You know, that I was able to um, go back to that originating moment that demanded that I identify as an atheist because my beliefs were no different than those who were being persecuted. Yeah. Um, to be able to have brought a family away from that kind of persecution and give them a new life here in Canada is that's just like that's, that's just probably that's awesome. one of the most yeah. amazing things that I've been able to make happen or help happen you know i'm honored to have been part of that and if i had not done that way back in 2015 i probably would never have even heard of this person's plight mm. so wow. yeah anyway so yeah you can find me on twitter greta vosper i'm not doing a lot on twitter these days mostly because i just don't have the time but if someone emails me and it's greta.vosper at gmail.com Tell me what it is in the subject line, and I will get back to you. If not within that week, hit me again, cool. and, and I will get back to you. Absolutely. Awesome. I try to do that. Thank you for your time. Yes, absolutely. It's been a great, great conversation. conversation. Thank, you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Nice meeting you, Don uh, and Jerry, and good to chat with you again. And Jeff. you, too. Much love. Thanks, okay. Greta. Awesome. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 All right, so do we have any recommendations? I recommend people... But they have to wear a helmet while doing this. This is a, neg- <laughs> this is a negative recommendation. This recommendation is, should come with the trigger warning. The trigger, yes, but I think it's important that people be aware of what this administration is uh, about. And so this is the William Barr talk he did at Notre Dame on religious freedom. I can't remember. I don't know if that's what the title of it was. We'll put a we'll put a link, link to, to the YouTube video. Yeah. You know, so many of you have probably seen the little clips from it, but it's pretty interesting slash scary to watch the whole thing. You know, he's basically saying in it, everything that's wrong in this country is due to secularism and progressive people. So, I mean, that's all our fault. Yep, absolutely. Pretty much. Yep. So, you know, unless you come to Jesus and fix things, then this country's going downhill. So, I mean, that kind of feeds into kind of the story of, of the Republican 2020 message. Socialism, Socialism and, and secularism. secularism, the two dirty S's. Yep. So, so that's my recommendation is watch that and be very afraid. Right. And you have one? My recommendation is way more fun than your Good. Oh, fun. All right. uh, a quick recommendation is I think everyone should listen to the Chris Hayes with Pod interview with Jason Kander, the former Senate candidate, former mayoral candidate, former crooked media podcaster. He's the guy that took apart the AR-15 or the machine gun blindfolded when he ran for Senate oh, in wow. 2016 and then abruptly ended his mayoral campaign in Kansas City because he had he went in for treatment for PTSD. Hmm. So he was like this total rising progressive star, was going to be mayor of Kansas City, just said in the middle of the campaign, I need to get treated for PTSD. His story about PTSD and how he realized he had it and how he realized he was not coping with it, so lucid. And you're just like, I think, thought him, 
times however tens of thousands of people who have had similar situations have difficulty dealing with it. It was an amazing listen, and I think everyone should listen to it. So that's Chris Hayes, his podcast? Yeah. what is? I think it's called What Is... What's up with that? Or yeah, it's like a with. I forget what with stands for. Stands for. What's up with um, that or something like that? Something. Yeah. Along, it's. We'll put a link. Yeah, uh, we'll definitely put a link. And for unfortunately, it. that that was not even my my recommendation. My other recommendation is way off the charts. And I think I was texting you prior to that. Is everyone should go to YouTube and watch. <laughs> what, and look, this this yeah. may be my first. YouTube this recommendation. Is a call of action to go to YouTube. <laughs> for the, I, I realize the, I realize the hypocrisy, okay. but it's the only place I think you can you can see it. And it's a German techno marching band yes. called. Yes. They're either Mute or Mute. M e u t e. Okay. They're eleven, eleven M-U-T-E. guys. They yeah. play a variety of marching band instruments, but it's marching band. Kind of meets techno music, but everything they play is like live. Hmm. And I went and saw them last Friday. Like it was an amazing show. I just kind of happened to see it, and I was like, I kept seeing this German techno marching band playing all over. Like, oh, they're playing in Detroit. Oh, they're playing in Nashville. Oh, they're playing in Nashville. Like, man, fuck, I wish they were playing here. And then I saw a tweet. It was like, oh, they're playing here. I gotta go see them. It was amazing. If you watch, if you go to football, college football, and actually want to see the band, which there's a lot of people that, yeah. that do, yep. this is absolutely, like, think of a more kind of upbeat, techno New Orleans brass band. Great musicianship. The whole crowd was dancing. It was a blast. The name of the video is Live in Paris, and it's like on repeat on my Apple Music. So now when you everyone, went to it, was it outdoors or was it indoors? It was it was at the Masquerade downtown. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, because I know when, when you uh, messaged me about that, you know, you're going to see a marching band. Yeah. yeah. That's, techno that's, marching band. Right. German yeah. techno marching band. Right. The only kind of techno yeah. marching band. <laughs> But man, I mean, we all they, we all showed up in our stereotypical black turtlenecks. Okay, no, that's not true. But <laughs> you when had, I you do, had the feathered hat on, and wear, the... you know what? It was a really diverse crowd. You know, it was a really great cross section of people. It's not like you go to shows and it's like eighty mm-hmm. percent of that one type of person. It wasn't your typical. German techno marching band <laughs> crowd. I just wonder how, do, how does the way diverse one? <laughs> but how do these people find? How did you yeah. find them? I mean, that's crazy. How did you stumble across I, yeah. German I, techno? Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. I follow a lot of uh, concert places, particularly in other part in other cities. Like what? Because there's a lot of stuff. Surprisingly. Going on in the U.S. that doesn't come to Atlanta, yeah, yeah. and you got to kind of pay attention, or I feel like I got to pay attention to what's going on in some of these other cities. For this, like, very moment, literally, saw a tweet from a club in Detroit, like, "Oh, that German techno marching band that sounds kind of weird." Yeah. Oh, they're playing the Orange Peel in Asheville, which is right next to Wicked Weed, and is one of the best places to see live music in the United States. Yep. But they have a good lineup there. It's like, wow, they're playing the Orange Peel? Man, I wish I'd have known that. I'd have gone to Asheville. 
And then they played in Nashville and another place. Another good place like, to go. Right. Yeah, and it's it just like they're hitting all these musical hotspots for me. Yeah. And then I saw the tweet from the Masquerade, and it was like, they're playing, oh, tonight. Oh, <laughs> I'm going, Trump. There you go. Boom. Um, I see Empty Nester. Gotcha. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There are some to advantages. Follow your musical bliss. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. So yes. Yeah. Live in Paris. Yeah. They, right. Yeah. They are amazing. I was I was sucked in. And I got one short and sweet. The uh, secular survey. I actually I, I put a, a little post up on Facebook and the group about the secret it. Facebook group. The secret Facebook group. Not too long ago, uh, there's a. This was before it went live, where you could go on and register. With the survey, and oh, you, right, get a, right. you get a reminder when it went. I think it went live a week ago on the fifteenth, but it's it's live now. I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, so go out, fill out the secular survey, and, and be counted. You sure this isn't the Republican Party doing this just to get you sucked in? Uh, it's, you, oh, you, oh, yeah, it's like register your guns. Yeah, so you know we'll find out where the them. socialists yeah. and yeah. secular people are. Yeah. Oh, that, oh, so that's uh, that's good point. I wonder how many people are going to be like you're not putting my name on the database. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. what I mean, mailing list am I going to get on? That, that, well, when the man takes over all the databases, or somebody hacks what, in, what are you going to be? Your name's going to be on on all of them, Jeff. Well, I'll be. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm aware of that. If you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Stolen well, from Billy Bragg. And on that note, uh, drop us a line. Godlessheathens at yahoo.com, our email. Uh, Twitter, before mentioned Twitter, at Godless Podcast. <laughs> and also the before mentioned Facebook, the hidden, the closed, the private Secret. discussion group. Five stars on YouTube, please. Podbean. Well, when you're five not- stars on iTunes. but Oh, yeah. shoot. And I was looking straight at it. And I did have. They know what you meant. I did have one beer. It was a. Yeah, what did you have? It was a Greenstone DDH Amarillo American Pale Ale from Old Nation Brewery in Williamston, Michigan. And Jeff had a A batshit crazy. Uh, Larissa is the one that gave me this. She bought it, and it didn't really label that there was lactose in it. She's lactose intolerant. Oh, okay. So she gave this over to me. It's a coffee brown ale, and it's, it's from Wisconsin somewhere. And, and I've been sipping Canadian Miss and Sprite since, uh, in honor of Greta. Uh, yep, we did. We thank her very much for coming on to the podcast, and it was good catching up with her, finding yep. out what's going on up, up in the Great White North. Very good. So we finally had somebody that kind of sat in. Since you're mad at Jesus and you won't invite him, you had invited her. Her at one point. Yep. So and she showed up. Dreams do come true. Right. Absolutely. So so who 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 do you want to send an invite to, out to this week? Ryan or Neil? Real people that Real might people actually that come might actually on. Show yeah, up. I'm, I'm tired of you know invisible, non-existent people. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. On that note, we'll see you next time. All right. See you in a couple weeks. Bad. The devil is a bum, but the devil is my friend. The devil.